Welcome to Namina's Mental Health Mavens. I'm your host, Joanne, and every Sunday we bring you mental health and addictions experts to talk on a variety of topics, including advanced evidence-based therapies. Now, guests' opinions are their own and some content may be triggering, but our mission here and on our Nomina Wellness YouTube channel is to make exceptional mental health support accessible to everyone. So make sure to subscribe, give us a good rating, and maybe even share with a friend. So let's get to it. Welcome to episode nine of Mental Health Mavens, where we're picking up our conversation with Dan Calco. Now, last week, if you missed it, we talked about evolutionary psychology, and we're continuing our conversation today talking about the social aspects of it as well as addiction. So with that, let's pick it up with Dan. Does addiction play a part in evolutionary psychology? Again, yes, it does, for sure. And I boil down humanity in that evolutionary piece to where pleasure seeking pain avoiding that's based. That's the basis of human reflexes, human evolutionary. And that's what we are programmed to do. We seek things that feel good because we get rewarded in our brain. We get special chemicals that reward us in our brain. Dopamine is the biggest one that most people know about. And we avoid pain. Like I said, the heat will cause us to want to shy away from it. If we have to walk over some sharp rocks. We're going to want to avoid that because we know it's going to cause us pain. We're going to find a different way. We want to avoid all those kind of things. And addiction, uh, in whatever form, whether it's a substance abuse, uh, if it's a, uh, a drug or an alcohol or a, a behavioral addiction like uh, shopping or sex or internet addiction, there are all ways that we're avoiding pain and going to something that's giving us that dopamine hit, that, that pleasurable feeling, at least in the short term. So, in a, for example, alcohol activates that, cocaine activates that dopamine hit short term. And oftentimes what we find is that there is some sort of emotional process that's happening on, over here somewhere that the subconscious doesn't want to look at. And it goes, I know this will make me feel good, even if it is for a moment, as opposed to having to deal with all of this emotional pain and trauma that I've been carrying around for who knows how long. I'm just going to do this and it's going to do it over and over and over again. And it often happens on autopilot. A lot of the clients that I deal with that suffer from substance abuse recount that they found themselves in a liquor store and they don't know how they got there. That's that autopilot that's running in the background or they, they, they grabbed a, a beer from the bridge and they're drinking it before they even realized it. That terminology is something that I hear a lot in my practice and also in our practice at Namana where they, so I, every day I drove away uh, a route that took me away from the, the liquor store because I knew that alcohol is my trigger and I've been trying to stay sober. And then that one day I ended up there and I don't know how. And that's what we see is that's the autopilot. That's that evolutionary part of the brain, the automatic subconscious part of the brain doing its thing to keep its human safe. That's its job. It thinks it's keeping you safe uh, in the short term. It's very bad. And this is another evolutionary piece is that subconscious part of the brain is very bad at planning long term. And one of the great examples that I have about that is if somebody was being chased by a tiger, then they would run as fast as they can. They might cause damage to their knees and the ligaments. They might run faster than they've ever run before, causing themselves physical damage. But that's that subconscious part going, 
if I don't get away, I will not survive. And so it doesn't matter if I blow out my knees running away from this tiger because I will be lunch for the tiger. I can deal with my knees later if I survive. But if I don't survive, then there's no worrying about later. It's very short-term focused. And that's what we see in a lot of people who suffer from substance abuse is that it's a short-term solution, but there's a longer-term problem in the background that the subconscious is running away from. And it's just going to worry about it later. And it's and even though our conscious mind, our logical mind can say, I know that if I drink alcohol all the time, I will have liver damage and cirrhosis, and eventually it will cause my death. It, the subconscious part of the brain doesn't think that far in advance because it doesn't say it's ever going to happen, right? It doesn't, it's not programmed to think 10, 20, 30 years down the line. All it wants to do is keep you safe now. And if you're having a response, let's say you get triggered at work or a family member triggers you, then that alcohol becomes that soothing, that pleasure-seeking mechanism to avoid the painful emotions that might be associated with this person, this individual, this this a scenario, this location, this whatever it ends up being that's triggering us. I can see it from an evolutionary standpoint that, you know, once the first early human found that mushroom or whatever it was that changed how we felt and brought that, that whoosh, you know, no, no worries from the tigers and the bears and what the other people or other people in our clan are saying that, uh, and it's been addiction has been around since humans have been around. For sure. And again, that that plays a part in our biology and our psychology. Like I said, we're we're seeking that pleasure. We want to seek that pleasure. And it's in our culture too, right? It, it's you always have to feel good and we always want to be happy all the time. And uh, it's reinforced that the good feelings, we have we have positive and negative emotions. I even use them today as we've been talking. We have positive and negative emotions. And and to our brain, there's no such thing as a positive or a negative emotion. This is a label that we've put on our emotions. And it's influenced by things like culture, society, upbringing, all of these things view how we see these emotions in a social way, in a social constructive way. Um, and the negative emotions, anger, rage, they tend to be shunned, right? They're bad. We don't want them. They also tend to be, when expressed, they tend to be um, not socially adaptive emotions. So we, we've learned to shut them down, right? We've learned, we've taught people, we teach our kids don't get angry. Don't yell at people. Don't like sh- to repress those emotions. And then we encourage the other side of that where we say, Oh, you're happy. It's okay to be happy in a group of people, right? People ha- are happy with other people and it spreads. People are, ha- uh, people enjoy those positive emotions together. And that's socially reinforced in a positive way. And so we kind of skew our emotional balance to encouraging positive emotions. I don't have a better word for it. Positive emotions away from negative emotions. But what we know is the subconscious treats all emotions as the same way. And that's another thing that I bring into my practice is reframing positive and negative emotions as just emotions and giving them the same space and honoring them in the same way. Because when we don't, they get repressed. When they get repressed, they sit and store physically in the body. If they get repressed long enough, we see physical ailments form around those repressed emotions. So from a... From a social perspective, evolutionary psychology is, is very important. And we've learned to co-regulate with other people. I don't know if you've ever heard the term mirror neuron. Is There are specified cells in our brain whose sole job it is to pick up on the emotions of other people. So much so that we can actually feel those emotions within us. And that's one of those evolutionary mechanisms that 
causes humans to be able to relate to one another. It's very important if we think back to um, human society, tribal or clan society back 200,000 years ago, 500,000 years ago, when human sapien, homo sapiens were just kind of forming those social structures, is it allowed people to share emotions. And that's one of the things that I often bring up in, in conversation and in sessions is that we have strong emotions. Oftentimes, we don't have to deal with those emotions on our own. Sometimes they're too um, overwhelming to have to deal with on our own. And having someone or a group of people to be able to share through some of our difficult emotions can lighten that emotional burden on the individual. It kind of like that, that metaphorical spreading the load makes it easier to deal with some of those emotions. And a great example that I have comes from a book that I read by Sebastian Younger. It's called Tribe. And he draws an example of the, the London bombing, the Blitz, during World War II. So during World War II, there was 40 days or, or 40 nights more of bombing that the Germans did to try to um, destabilize support, British support for the war effort, wanting to try to, to get them to petition their government, pressure their government to pull out of the war because they were getting bombed for 40 days. And one of the things that he writes about is that people would cower and hunker down in their basements and in bomb shelters all together. So there would be dozens and dozens of people maybe in this bomb shelter with very little room to move. So people were forced to be in each other's spaces. And one would think that that would be a very traumatic experience. One would think that the people coming out of these bomb shelters after the 40 days or after being bombed for however many weeks on end would be traumatized. They would be unable to function. Like for a lot of people, that would be a logical understanding is that they would be having the effects of that affect them either mentally or physically. And what they found was it actually reduced the number of visits to psychiatric hospitals. People were actually discharging themselves more because they were feeling better after something like this. And when we break it down from that, that perspective of being able to share those emotions, it's people together acknowledging whatever emotions are happening, fear, anger, sadness, hopelessness, all of these things that are happening, but they're not doing it in isolation. They're doing it together. And it's for one, it spreads that emotional load to all of the people that may be sharing that bunker, but it also indicates to the individual that they're not alone, that this emotion that they're feeling is something that is okay to feel. And it's, and that again, spreads it. So now we relate to everybody on a much deeper level on that much more emotional level, level, which connects us on that primal, that evolutionary piece. And now we're all in this together and we feel better. And so even though it's a traumatic experience and even though the emotions are difficult and painful and, and hard to handle, we handle them together. Individuals that try to handle those emotions on their own tend to have a much harder time and often succumb to certain other types of mental illness because we as an individual don't have the tools to deal with those extremely traumatic events. And we as a society have become much more isolationist over the past five decades. And that hinders our ability to share this emotional load with other people. And it goes against our evolutionary programming. Our evolutionary programming is to seek out other people, form communities, form close relationships that have an emotional basis to them, and, and um, persevere. We don't really do that in our society. Some do. There are some societies uh, that currently exist that, that do that 
in different ways or encourage more of that collectivist understanding of society. But Western society, so North American society is very individualist. We also see a huge rise in mental health issues with people. And one of the reasons could be that they're trying to do it all on their own. And that's not something that we're programmed to do. Yeah. Sonia Dubinsky and I did a video on the neurosequential model of therapeutics, and I'll link mm-hmm. that in the description in the show notes. But we sure. had talked about that, that that connection is so important. And mm-hmm. I know in the 12-step community with addictions, there's that rat park experiment and how important it is to have these solid connections and community in our lives. Exactly. And that's one of the real benefits of the AA community is that it is a community. There is a meeting almost anywhere at any time of day, especially now with technology that you can join to get that emotional connection. So if an individual is struggling, if they're having their, their uh, cravings speak at, uh, at a given moment, or they're dealing with a difficult uh, life event, they can go to a meeting again, pre COVID, hopefully post COVID, it'll be much more uh, acceptable, but they can, they can connect with somebody or, or a group of people and share that from a non-judgmental space in in a very raw, open way that shares that emotion. Oftentimes, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but people who struggle, people with cravings that go to meetings, those cravings pass, and they have a new set of of uh, of balance between that and their next craving. And that's that helpful piece, that social piece that informs the sharing of those emotional of that emotional weight. And, and even just having a sponsor, another individual who you can call up on and rely on to help you carry that emotional load is, is worth its weight in gold in terms of getting through difficult things like a substance abuse yeah. issue. And supporting somebody else on their journey as well, too, being that sponsor. It's, it becomes self-reinforcing. And that's one of the things that those mirror neurons do is if if I show you emotional vulnerability and share with you my emotional load, then you help me through it. But now I'm going to be much more willing to help you through the opposite scenario where you have an emotional issue that you want to share with me. And it normalizes the sharing of feelings, which is really, really important in terms of being able to deal with our feelings. We have a very emotionally disconnected society right now because of some of the things that I mentioned, because we shun negative emotions, because we only encourage positive emotions. Um, and the opposite is true, too. Sometimes it's hard to feel positive emotions for, for negative or difficult scenarios. Um, but again, emotions get shunned. We have appropriate emotions. It's one of the things a lot of my clients say is that that's not appropriate emotion to share. And that, that comes from a, a certain place, right? It comes from a societal perspective that says, no, you shall not be angry. Uh, religion plays a big deal in two, right? There's 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 love. A lot of religions preach love, but discourage anger and hate. Um, yet those are elements that we have as humans. And if we come at it from a non-judgmental perspective, it's just an emotion, and we need to be able to feel comfortable in sharing those. So if you share with me your negative emotion, I'm going to feel like I've helped you, which gives me a dopamine hit, which says I've done a good thing. But it also normalizes for me that it's okay to express a negative emotion so that I will be much more encouraged in the future to share my negative emotion with you because I know that it helped you. I felt good helping you, but you're probably going to feel good helping me. And I'm going to feel good because I shared my emotions with you. And that's just two people. If we have a group of people like, like a church or a, or a, 
a hobby group or whatever that ends up looking like, whatever the group is, it becomes that much more effective. The more we share, the more comfortable we feel sharing, the more that load is spread out, the better we feel. It becomes self-reinforcing. Other members, other members sorry, will then feel encouraged to share and then that will reinforce the fact that it's okay to share. And then the other members that didn't share will see that and it just becomes this thing where everybody now feels encouraged and reinforced to want to share because they don't have to do it alone. Now, I know groups outside of the 12-step community are popping up. You have a men's group in Winnipeg, correct? We have a men's group in Comox. So uh, in Comox, Lisa um, co-facilitates a men's group. I used to facilitate it with her until I moved to Winnipeg. Uh, we're just waiting for our office to be finished uh, finish construction here, and then we'll be offering men's and women's groups here. Because of this, being able to share emotions, uh, is so helpful for people to have a safe space because oftentimes they'll feel like they'll be judged or shunned or or dismissed for showing an emotion, especially for men. Men have been uh, told that their emotions are bad. Uh, the only uh, emotions that most men are comfortable sharing are anger and happiness. And those are the ones that we've kind of steamed as a society that are acceptable for men to show. But what we know psychologically is that Every emotion available to a human is available to a man. We've just learned to repress them. And that's where these groups can be really helpful because oftentimes um, negative social interactions come from repressing emotions. So violence, um, gendered violence, social violence come from a whole host of repressed emotion building up over time and then exploding. Like if you imagine a, a, a top uh, like a lid on a boiling pot if it, it wants to, it's like simmering and then it wants to blow off if you build up enough steam underneath it that's what happens with our emotions especially negative emotions they build up and build up and build up and then they explode they become uncontrollable that's that evolutionary part again where we no longer have logical control of those emotions and they end up doing things that are usually not good they we say things that we don't mean we hurt people emotionally verbally physically because of that uncontrolled raw emotion that's that's there, but it's been repressed. So that's why these groups are so helpful. Yeah, no, I am so proud of men these days. Even my own husband, who's a manly man, and and um, he's opened up to it, just being part of the recovery community and sharing. And I've watched so many men begin to share their experiences about how you know they were molested as kids, or how they they got angry and beat their children, and and are just healing because they're finally talking about it yeah and that all goes back to what i was talking about um or maybe i didn't mention in this video yet is that we have a capacity for emotion and stress and if we build that capacity up and we sit near the top i often uh get people to imagine a cup filled with water and every drop is a stressful situation or an emotion that's been repressed it fills up that cup and oftentimes we have a very limited capacity of being able to function with maybe a tiny bit at the top of that big cup for stress. And that's why a lot of people feel overwhelmed when something comes because they don't have the capacity left in that cup to be able to um, appropriately respond to certain situations. A great example is somebody is, is pretty stressed, chronically stressed, they drop their phone right? It just falls from the table on the ground, doesn't break, it doesn't do anything, yet their reaction becomes um, non-congruent with the 
the thing that happens. So they get angry. They start swearing. They start, maybe they start smashing plates or tables or something like they just get really, really angry because they dropped a phone. And to anybody else, that might seem like a very trivial thing. Well, my phone fell. It didn't break. Everything is fine, right? I'll pick up the phone and go. But somebody with a very limited capacity to be able to handle additional stressors will overreact because it's those drops that fall in that overflow the cup. And when the cup is overflowing, it becomes very difficult to control. You can't direct where it's going to overflow, on which side of the cup it's going to overflow. It just overflows. And that's where men have had, like predominantly men have had to suppress a lot of those emotions, filling up that cup. And we see a lot of men who kind of go zero to a hundred very quickly in terms of anger or violence because they have very limited capacity left. And what you describe with your husband and other men being able to share is every time we share, we no longer have to store that emotion in the cup anymore because we've expressed it. That's the only way we can get through emotion is to get through it, right? There's a saying, if you're going through hell, keep going. And what we're doing is we're not going through hell. We're storing hell in a cup and it's full. And then the next thing that goes in there just explodes it. But if you pull it out, and that's what I do with my clients is we pull it out, we look at it, we feel it. It doesn't have to go back in. It just kind of disappears and forms a, a resilience piece that says, A, emotions are okay. B, this made me stronger and I no longer have to hold myself kind of down because of this weight of this emotion. But it also creates capacity so that the next thing that goes in there Maybe it doesn't overflow the cup. Maybe the phone falls out next time and we look at it and we go, oh, maybe I shouldn't put it so close to the end of the table. And we pick it up and we put it in a much more safe position. That's that. That's what we're going for is to have as much capacity in that cup available. And as you said, sharing emotions is one of the ways that we can do it. But yeah, yeah so that, that first piece and then the second piece being the social aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that we're social beings so that everything we do has has evolved in a group setting. We don't, we haven't evolved individually. We're not bears. We don't, we're not solitary beings that get together, mate, and then leave. We form communities. Uh, We form relationships, multiple relationships. If you think about uh, anybody who lives in a close knit community, they have dozens and dozens of intimate relationships. I don't mean sexual. I mean, intimate, like emotionally intimate relationships that they have created. And if you were to plot it on a web, oftentimes I get my clients to plot their their relationships on a web. And then the relationships of just that first degree of relationships uh, and the web becomes very, very busy, very, very quickly for people that have those healthy um, social connections. They have friends, they have family, they have uh, work colleagues, they have uh, maybe a church group, right? All of these people, they have certain levels of relationship and they don't all have to be deeply intimate, but they have some sort of basis of um, emotional connection or um, even a commonality in connection so that people can share um, experiences. And that's what we do as humans. That we're, that's what we're programmed to do is we want to share our experiences. And I think when you look at a lot of the, the research anthropologists do on um, early human societies, they were between 50 and 100 people strong, um, and they were tr- uh, nomadic, so they would move a lot. Um, and it would be one of those things where you would need to rely on everybody else in terms of your survival. Um, that survival would be linked because not every single person can do every job. There are people who are better at 
hunting. There are people that are better at building. There are people that, that are better at storytelling. There are people that are better at medicine. There are people that are better at taking care of children. Everybody has their role within the society, that, that tribal society or that clan type society. And that reinforces the society because A, I'm important and B, I'm contributing. And if uh, we draw this back to our stamp model, I don't know if you've done a talk with Lisa yet about stamp, but the tribe piece is important. The safety piece comes from numbers. So so stamp is safety, team or tribe, aim and ability, meaning and play, right? Those are the the, the components of, of the stamp model that Dr. Adriana Wilson um, developed. But we use it as a basis in our in our programs. And I use it as a basis to, to see what people have that they need in order to be well. But if you think about a hundred person uh, kind of nomadic group, they're going to have people that can keep watch for the tigers and the bears at night so that everyone else can sleep. They're going to have that connection, that safety. They're going to be able to share their emotions. They're also going to have an aim and an ability, right? They're really good at making clothing. They're really good at hunting. They're really good at whatever it is that they're really good at. That's what they contribute to the society. And that helps the society or that tribe survive. That also gives them meaning because now they're important. They feel like they're important. Other people view them as important. And then that play aspect is really important. Telling stories, being able to play games, discharge a lot of that energy through a healthy social way makes people well. And that's where I really bring it back to what did it look like 200,000 years ago? Because our biology hasn't changed very much over the past 200,000 years. Uh, our brains haven't developed that much over the last 200,000 years. And that's where that evolutionary psychology and biology piece comes in is what did it want to do? How do we adapt that to our modern society where we have 8 billion people on the planet, uh, which is an, a, a, it's an incomprehensible amount of people, I think. We say 8 billion, but it's really hard for the brain to fathom 8 billion of anything, let alone people. So, Well, in that video we did with Sonia, right from the get-go. And that's what she was sharing is as children, we used to have an entire tribe taking care of us. We had aunties and and we had uncles and we had grandma and grandpa and everybody was there and we had the other children and it was this community. And it's not like that anymore. A lot of children are growing up in isolation now. Exactly. Yeah. And it is very true what she said that, that we grew up uh, we still have that saying, it takes a community to raise a child. I think that's what it says. But we don't practice that, especially not in Western society. We're very isolationist, like I said before. Um, I was speaking with my physiotherapist who is uh, of Palestinian descent. And I had I was curious about this. And so I remember one of my coworkers telling me about a family reunion they had just uh, maybe like a couple of weeks ago. And uh, this was before COVID. And I think they had 25 people at this family reunion which seems like a lot, 25 family members all related to us, at least from my perspective, as somebody who was born in Canada, that seems like a lot of family members, right? That's uncles and cousins and, and nieces and nephews and all sorts of different relations. 25 people is a lot of people to put in a room or in a backyard. When I asked him what his his family reunions look like in Palestine, he said 80 to 100. And that was his family. That was what a family reunion was like for him. And so when you think about that like you said, all the children that you can play with, the different opportunities for people to engage with and interact with and share with and, and rely on and have rely on you, it becomes 
that much more multi-layered that it support every individual in that huge group feels much more supportive, right? I'm sick and I need to go to the hospital. I can call auntie number one, uncle number two, uh, cousin number three. Like there's so many people that can come support me. Yet when we think about North American society, sometimes it's really hard to find somebody that you can call in an emergency. Uh, and if grandma is not around or if uh, uncle number one is living in uh, who knows where, 5,000 kilometers away, we start to have these problems where we start now to feel alone and isolated and not connected with our family members. So what people can do about this is obviously connect with their neighbors, with their family, join men's groups, women's groups, church groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously there's 12 step groups. Uh, Any other advice that you would give for people feeling disconnected and alone and having no one to share with? I think that's really difficult though, because in terms of how our society is structured, we can want change. It's really hard to recruit others to our change. And like you mentioned, you just mentioned a whole litany of groups who have already accepted the fact that they want to change and they want to be more open in terms of sharing with other people. And so I'd highly encourage people to find groups like that. Like you said, men's groups, women's groups, grief groups, uh, addiction support groups, right? 12 steps, smart recovery, whatever you want to call it. There's there's sex addiction groups, there's a shopping addiction, internet addiction groups, where people can come and share that emotional load. Sometimes family is really hard to reprogram. People sometimes are really hard to reprogram. And it tends to be harder the older we get. People tend to be more set in their ways the older they are. Uh, Again, that's a generalization, but they tend to be harder to change. So people from the era of my parents, so who grew up in the 50s or born in the 50s and 60s, they tend to be very staunchly opposed to that emotional uh, openness because it was it was kind of shunned back then. I remember uh, my mom saying that the only person that she knew that ever went to a, a psychologist or a psychotherapist had a nervous breakdown and they were all messed up and they had to go. Nobody would choose to go. Uh, and that demonstrates the difference between how generations view mental health. And one of the things that encourages me as a a mental health professional is how much more willing younger people are at seeking that help in being able to talk through their emotions and find someone to help them through than perhaps older generations have been in the past. Well, that's why we're here and why we're doing these videos is for those people that are just quietly searching and exactly. stepping out into that arena. Exactly. Anything else, Dan? I, I think that's good for now. There's so much more, like you said, that we yeah. could have tangented from. And I enjoy talking about this kind of stuff. I, I talk about it with random people that I sit next to on the airplane and, and people that I'm waiting in line at the DMV with. Uh, and it's a topic that people really, I think, want to know more about. So, yeah, thank you. Awesome. If you are struggling and need a little help, call your local Nomina Integrated Health Community Clinic with locations across Canada, where we also offer no-charge appointments for those who need a little extra help. We also have our Nomina Wellness Comprehensive State Treatment Facility located in beautiful Comox Valley, British Columbia, which specializes in more complex and treatment-resistant disorders and addictions, and scholarships are available. Contact information for both can be found in our bio. And again, at Nomina, we are passionate about making mental health matter.